church worship team. As usual, you set the mood right. We're very grateful to have you. Thank you. You may take your seats. All right, before we begin, let's pray. Father, we thank you. Indeed, you are good. Excellent is your name, Lord. And we're just privileged to be called your sons and daughters. We are so amazed at how much you love us. Regardless and in spite of ourselves, you love us all the same. We thank you very much for the privilege of being in your house. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Welcome, everyone. It's good to be in the house. Um, yo, how was that rugby last night? Eh? Oof. It looks like you need to have a very good medical aid to be a Springbok supporter. Eh? You know, I, I, I wanted to wear my Springbok rugby jersey this morning and my wife said, there's no way. You can't stand there on a Sunday wearing Springbok colors. So I said, okay, that's fine. Yes, we are proud of the boys. How was Mr. Macquarella last week? Hmm? How was the sermon last week? We thank God. You know, coming from a non-mainstream Christian background, I was fascinated by the whole five solas thing. I never knew anything about that. I didn't even know what being a Protestant meant. Do you guys know? I didn't know. So, luckily we have Google, right? <laughs> yes, I googled it and it means a member or follower of any Western Christian church that is separate from the Roman Catholic Church. So, if you're not a Roman Catholic Church, then you are a Protestant. Very interesting for me. So, last week we learned about the five solas. Do you remember them before they come up on the, on, on, on the screen? Ah, Sola Scriptura, all right. <laughs> yes, we've got Sola Gratia, which means we are saved by the grace of God alone. Sola Fide, we are saved through faith alone in Jesus Christ. Sola Christos, Jesus Christ alone is our Lord, Savior, and King. Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone is our highest authority. And solid your gloria, we live for the glory of God alone. So today we're going to focus on sola scripture or sola scriptura. The Bible is the highest authority. It is the word of God. I don't know if you guys have the same problem that I used to have. But whenever I, read, I try to read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, I get stuck sometimes. I read an account that I cannot relate with or a story that doesn't make sense to me. So what I would do, either I would leave it or I'll just try to finish that chapter or that book so that I can say I finished it, but with very little understanding. Are we together, church? So I thought it would be a good idea to explain a little bit about the Bible 
the voice of God, right? That's what the Bible is. It's the voice of God. I thought it would be a very good idea to just explain how it's put together and how we can interpret it. First and foremost, we need to know what we are reading. What does that mean? The Bible has many genres. Just like in music, you've got pop, you've got hip-hop, you've got... I don't know if I'm a, I'm a pianist or genre, but you've got um, rock and roll and all those other genres. So does the Bible. In the Bible, we get legal texts or the law, we get narratives, we get sermons, we get poetry, we get a bit of humor, we get ancient history, we get a biography, we get encyclopedias, we get parables, we get words about the end of days called the apocalyptic days, we get letters, we get acts of the, of, of the apostles, and many more genres. Today we're going to be looking at the wisdom books. All right? The wisdom books are from uh, King Solomon. So today we're going to actually be looking at scriptures from Proverbs. All right? Anyway, we need to know the genre that we're about to read. So we can Google and just see, okay, this is the genre that I'm about to read if I've got a book open. That way, it will help us a little bit. And secondly, you need to know how to interpret. Once you know the genre, you need to know how to interpret the scripture. The Holy Spirit enables us to interpret the spiritual meanings in scripture. It is also vital for us to also know the author's intention. We know that scripture is God-breathed, right? God gave the authors divine inspiration and prompting to pen down the word of God. So we need to understand that intention. And to understand the intention, we need to understand the culture in which the writer was writing into. We must understand the feelings, the mannerisms, the phrasing, even the humor sometimes, so that we can understand the intention properly. This will make it easier for us. I don't know if you... I'm Betty. I don't know if in your language you've ever been to a place that speaks the same language, but when you listen to them, you can't understand what they're saying. The way they put together their sentences. If you're Betty, you might just go to Zanin. The way they speak Betty is very different. So if you don't understand the context and how things are put together, you might get lost. Are we together? All right, so it is important for us to understand what we are reading, understand the intention of the person who wrote, understand the genre in which that book is written in. It is also very important that when we read something, especially in the Bible, we need to know that it doesn't mean what we think or it doesn't mean what we want it to mean. Are we there, to church? It doesn't mean what we want it to mean. It means what the original author wanted it to mean. So we just can't create meanings as we go on. And I know lots of us are guilty of this. We just create a meaning, read a scripture, and you say, this is the way, and this is what the scripture means. I'm tempted to say, making things to seem the way we want them to seem is actually a, an issue that plagues our dear ladies more than the men. But I won't say it. I won't say it. But in all seriousness, it is important to understand the author's intention and not to give meaning that suits us. The original intention is the intention of God. 
And that intention of God is then expressed through that author. So, we know the genre, we know the intention. The last thing that we need to know is something called the four senses of scripture. The four senses of scripture is simply how scripture is supposed to be interpreted. You've got the literal sense. The literal sense just means that exactly how it is. Whatever you're reading, that's it. It's straightforward. There is no deeper meaning to it. It's just literally how it is. Then you've got the spiritual sense, which is divided into three. The spiritual sense, you get the moral sense. The moral sense is where you read something and it tells you or it teaches you how to live. It, it tells you maybe rules. It, it gives you guidance in a certain way or it just gives you a moral positioning on a matter. Are we there, church? Right. Then we also get what we call the allegoric sense. The allegoric sense refers to the meaning that's hidden behind te the text. Um, for example, one could say when the Israelites were in captivity in Egypt, then God took them out. God opened the Red Sea and they crossed. They were coming from slavery. They crossed the Red Sea and then they went to the promised land. They, they were free. Allegorically speaking, one could say that represents Christian baptism. You were slave to sin. Miraculously, God threw water, took you through water, and on, on the other side, you come out free of sin. So, allegorically speaking, one could say that that, that uh, movement of the Israelites through the Red Sea to Canaan represents Christian baptism. There are many, many other allegoric examples, but this type of interpretation one really needs to be very careful. It can easily be abused. As it relies on human intellect, although some people will say it's divine revelation, but you must be careful. You must go and read the scripture yourself. If I tell you something, you must go and read the scripture yourself so the Holy Spirit can also make a revelation to you. Are we still together, church? Joshua and his troops were instructed to march around the walls of Jericho for seven days, and on the seventh day, the walls would fall. Allegorically speaking, one could easily say, write down your problems, march around them for seven days, and the problems will disappear. Do you see how dangerous that can be? So we need to be very careful with this allegory thing. Lastly, we have what they call anagogical sense. It simply means interpretation that seeks to explain current and biblical events in light of eternal life. So whatever is happening now, explaining it in light of eternal life, focusing our eyes on heaven. That's what the anagogical sense means. Are we still together, church? All right. Let's do a quick re recap before we go on. So we need to know before we read the Bible, we need to be conscious of the genre in which the book that we're reading is written in. So you need to know. You need to understand the intention of the author and the manner of communication, especially in that culture, when he says this, what it actually meant. And lastly, you need to interpret the four senses of scripture. You need to know that what I'm reading now, it relates to maybe something literal or it's something that I need to get morally, something that is probably more allegoric or anagogical. Are we there, church? So today we are going to look at Sola Scriptura.
This morning's topic is biblical financial principles. Biblical financial principles. Are we ready? You're not ready. (laughs) Well, you are here, you need to be ready. All right, so as I said before, most of our scriptures this morning will come from the book of Proverbs written by King Solomon. The book of Proverbs is generally considered a book of wisdom and a great guide um, for godly principles around a whole host of different issues and matters. Before we get into it, let us read a short historical account of King Solomon and his acquisition of wisdom. Follow with me in 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 7, then 10 to 12. That night, God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give to you. Solomon responded, Give me wisdom and knowledge so that I may go out and come in performing my duties before this people. For otherwise, who can rule and administer justice to this great people of yours? God replied to Solomon, Because this was in your heart and you did not, want, you did not ask for riches, possessions, or honor and personal glory, or the life of those who hate you, nor have you even asked for long life, but you have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself, so that you may rule and administer justice to my people over whom I've made you king. Wisdom and knowledge have been granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such, such as none of the kings who were before you has possessed, nor will those who will come after you. So Solomon asked for wisdom and knowledge so that he can perform his duties diligently as the king of God's people. God gave him this wisdom. Let's go in on in Proverbs 29, verse 18. Where there is no vision, no revelation of, God's, of God and his word, people are, res, are unrestrained, but happy and blessed is he who keeps the law of God. Elsewhere we read, where there is no vision, my people perish. This vision is not a vision like you would have in an organization where you have a vision statement and a mission statement and you've got a forecast or a plan. This vision actually relates to God's word, the divine guidance of God's word. So we need divine guidance from God in every material area of our lives, more so in our finances. Are we together, church? Have you realized, though, that as Christians, we understand the principle of cause and effect? Like, I can't go up to the fifth story of a building and jump because I know gravity will make me fall and I'll fall to my demise. Am I correct? On a very cold winter night, I can't go outside wearing a vest. I'll probably get flu. We know that, right? We are wise in these areas. But when it comes to our finances, we, oh, let me speak about me. I sometimes abuse grace. I sometimes abuse grace. What do I mean? I don't spend time reading the Old Testament and understanding God's principles around finances because I fool myself by saying the Old Testament is the law. Jesus came to abolish the law. Now I live in or under the grace of God. 
I'm a New Testament Christian, saved by grace in the death and resurrection of Christ. So I can just ignore financial principles that are in the Old Testament. With grace, I'll be all right. That's how I abuse grace. But it's funny, when it comes to gravity, I don't abuse it, right? But in finances, I abuse it. You see, grace gives us unmerited favor from God. We've got God's love because of grace and salvation. But grace does not remove consequences of our actions, whether good consequences or bad consequences. We cannot pray for grace in, in situations where we need to be acting. Are you with me? All right, let's dive deeper into these financial principles. The first one, we find it in Proverbs 3, verse 9 to 10. Honor God with your wealth. Honor God with your wealth. Let's read verse 9 and 10. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your buns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. So how do we exactly do that? How do we honor God with our wealth? Well, we need to give generously. We need to use our, our money wisely. We need to support God's work and we need to give to those who are in need. Very funny for me, note how this principle says, honor God with your wealth and with the first fruits. So I used to think, okay, 10% of my monthly income is God's, so I give 10%, all right? And the rest of the 90% is mine to do whatever I please. Are we there, church? But the scripture says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits, which means even the 90%, I still have to be a good steward of that 90%. It's not just mine to do as I please. I need to be a good steward and I need to be God-honoring in how I use that, that tithe that doesn't belong to me, that belongs to God. I give it and the 90% that I have for my own sustenance, I need to use it wisely. You see, this principle has a cause and effect. If I honor the Lord with my wealth, what is the effect? The effect is that my buns will be filled with plenty and that plenty can be used to carry on honoring God. Are we there, church? But how do we do this practically? So I used to spend 100% of the money I would receive. And then I would say, you know what? I need it for my necessities. Maybe I'm paying debt or whatever else that I need. But what's interesting, when I used to earn 1,000 rand, my necessities were 1,000 rand. Then when I earned 5,000 rand, guess what? My necessities were 5,000 rand. So, clearly my practice was not God-honoring. I was honoring my growing necessities, not necessarily God. And normally my necessities don't come from need, probably come from desire. Craig Hill of Family Foundations tried to assist us answer this question of how do we practically honor God with our finances? And how do I become a good steward? He suggested the following categories of allotting our monthly income. 
My wife and I also introduce this to our kids so they can grow up understanding money this way. So each child has five jars that they must use immediately when they receive their pocket money. The first jar is 10%, which is God's tithe. It's not ours, it's God's. So the first jar, 10% uh, of whatever we receive goes into that jar. The second jar is called offering or helping others. 10% of my monthly income must go into that second jar. All right? So that is for whenever somebody calls me and says they are stuck somewhere or you know, they don't have this or they don't have that or wherever need occurs, I know that I've pre-planned for that need. It's not my need, it's somebody else's need, but I've pre-planned for that need. 10% goes into the jar for the offering. Then 10% goes to saving. So I might want to save for a big item or whatever else that, that I need that needs me to put money in every month. So the third jar is 10%, that's for saving. The next jar is 20%, that's for investing. Investing in something that will increase in value. All right? And the last jar is 50%, which is for my upkeep, for my spending. So, and they are put in this order on purpose. When the money comes in, 10% tithe jar, 10% helping others jar, 10% savings, which means I must have a goal that I'm saving for, right? 20% investing jar. Even if I don't have something to invest in, I put it in there so that when I do have something to invest in, I can access it. And then 50% for my needs. So my child asks, what is investing? He gets all the other four jars, but what is investing? So investing is placing your money somewhere that will increase in value. It will make the money increase in value. Usually through producing a product or performing a valuable service for others. You are then paid by those who use your product or use your services. You are usually paid more than the cost that it costs you to produce the product or to offer the service. That increase is called profit. And that profit makes your investment jar grow quicker and quicker. Are we there? All right. So separating your monthly income into five categories or five jars can help you honor God with your wealth. We were not taught this growing up, but it's never too late to start. Discipline is however required. Am I making sense? I'm not going too fast. All right, the second principle, avoid debt. Avoid debt. Let's look at what King Solomon says in Proverbs 22 verse 7. The rich rules over the poor, and the, bro the borrower is the slave of the lender. This is straightforward, church. No allegory, no deeper meaning. Us who borrow are slaves to the lender. End of story. You know, in 2009, when I was, I almost said tricked to get married, when I was planning to get married, um, <laughs> I spoke to a colleague of mine at, at work. Uh, he was from a village in Sikukune. We discussed Lobola and the whole financing around the wedding. And he told me that in his village, when a boy child is born, a female cow is picked in the kraal, and that's his cow. 
So as he grows, that cow will keep giving birth to other calves, whether male or female, and it will form a small herd for him. And by the time he is of marrying age, he already has a herd for himself that he can use to pay Lobola and to start a life. This concept of taking out debt to finance a wedding or taking out debt to buy a house was foreign to him. This was a, re a really great revelation for me. How we've been tricked by the system. We've been tricked by the system. We've been tricked by the lenders. You know, a century ago, men across the world, no matter, where, no matter which country, men across the world would come together, bring building material together to help a new couple start, start a house or start, start a life by building a house. So no bonds, there were no bonds then, but now we've got bonds and um, we get enslaved for 20 years uh, the other day so that you actually can get a bond for 30 years now. 30 years. This is a difficult principle to apply if you're already in that long-term bond of 20 or 30 years. But if you use the strategy of the jars that we spoke about earlier, you might maybe be able to pay off your debt quicker and get out of this slave trade that we are in. Maybe a message for the young people. Avoid debt at all costs. Given the effects of industrialization and you know, migration to the cities, you might not have cattle in your name, but I urge you, save and invest so that you can avoid unnecessary debt. You can avoid being a slave to the, borrow to the borrower, or to the lender, rather. Only spend 50% of your income. You will thank yourself later. There's another form of debt that's good debt. This is called leveraging. Leveraging is any technique involve, involving borrowing funds to invest in something. So you're borrowing funds to invest in something where you estimate the profits that you'll make from that investment will be more than the cost of borrowing or will be more than, more than, the, in, more than the, the interest you're being charged. For instance, maybe you know that if you buy a bicycle for 2,000, you can sell it for 3,000 and the Dumatebulo will charge you interest of 10%, which is 200 rands, right? So that bicycle is costing you 2,200, but then you're gonna make 3,000, so you make a profit of 800 rands, which means you have leveraged. That's good debt, all right? Are we there, church? All right. So we shouldn't really get into that so much, but should you have or should you need debt to fund a business idea or an investment, it would be a good idea to go see a financial advisor before you get into the debt. Can we go to our third principle? Are we there? First principle, honor God with your wealth. Second principle, avoid debt. Third principle, danger of chasing wealth. God says there's a danger in chasing wealth. Let's hear what this danger is. Proverbs 23, verse 4 to 5. Don't overwork to be rich because of your own understanding. Seize. Seize means stop. Don't overwork to be rich because of your own understanding. Seize. Will you set your eyes 
on that which is not? For riches certainly make themselves wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. The message version reads as follows. Don't wear yourself out trying to get rich. Restrain yourself. Riches disappear in the blink of an eye. Wealth sprouts wings and flies into the wild blue yonder. So we are told that we must not work, overwork ourselves to be rich. Don't get rich or die trying. When you do that, you compromise relationships. You compromise your wealth. And sometimes you compromise godly principles that have been laid as a foundation in your faith. And why would you do that for something that will disappear in a blink of an eye? Riches are very temporary, but things that you're sacrificing are forever, and they'll be gone forever. Once a relationship with a child or a spouse is gone, you will need God to, re to rekindle that relationship. Are we there, church? All right. So, the danger of chasing wealth. Don't chase wealth. Because wealth is very temporary. Okay, there are a few other biblical principles around finances in the book of Proverbs that I think deserve our attention. We won't expound, though, because of time. We'll just read them. Let's look at Proverbs 12, verse 11. Work hard at the job, sorry, work hard at your job and you will have what you need. Following a get-rich-quick scheme is nothing but fantasy. This isn't the Bible. Following a get-rich-quick scheme is nothing but fantasy. Work hard at the job you have. Proverbs 13 verse 11. Wealth quickly gained is quickly wasted. Easy come, easy go. But if you gradually gain wealth, you will watch it grow. I don't know if you guys have seen the show, I blew it. <laughs> easy come, easy go. All right? Proverbs 10, verse 4. He who has a slack hand becomes poor, but the hand of the diligent makes rich. Other versions say, if you're lazy, you'll be poor. If you work hard, you will gain wealth. Very straightforward. Let's look at Proverbs 21, verse 20. There is, de there is desirable treasure and oil in the dwelling of the wise, but a foolish man squanders it. A foolish man, once he, once he gets something, he quickly squanders it. But a wise man, you will see it because they will invest in things and you will start seeing it. Lastly, let's look at Proverbs 16, verse 8. Better to have little with godliness than to be rich and dishonest. Better to have little with godliness than to be rich and dishonest. Note that the wisest man who ever lived, which is King Solomon, never once said, pray away the consequences of not following godly biblical principles around finances. That would be abusing grace. You can't pray away those consequences. We pray for our daily bread and God will present opportunities to work and to explore. 
Don't be fooled by the new wave of prosperity churches. There is no oil. There is no water. There is no amount of giving that will buy you a miracle, a miracle to make you rich. Why don't those people take the money and buy the miracles and they become rich? Why are they saying, come join us, buy this, buy that, you'll become rich? Don't be fooled. Anyway, I encourage you to delve into the book of Proverbs. There are plenty more principles that we didn't cover because of time. Lastly, let's look at what Jesus says about money and wealth. Did you know that 16 of the 38 parables that Jesus told were around money? 16 of the 38 parables that he told were around money. Did you know that the only subject Jesus taught more about than money was the kingdom of God? So he spoke about the kingdom of God and the second most important thing that he spoke about was money. So money and wealth are very important. Jesus prioritized them. Why did Jesus prioritize this? Because there's an inherent connection in scripture between your personal spiritual life, your attitudes, and your actions around money and possessions. There's a connection there. And again, I urge you to read about what Jesus taught around the subject of money. Our last scripture for this morning will come from Matthew 6, verse 24. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Jesus is speaking in the context of slave and master relationship. He's saying it is impossible to serve two masters. A slave can only serve one master at a time. Jesus is clearly speaking about the position of our hearts, saying it is impossible for your heart to, save, to serve both God and love the pursuit of money at all cost. Saving money, he's talking about sacrificing your God and your biblical principles in pursuit of money. So let's not mix or get confused with what Jesus is saying. Pursuing money is important. You need money to meet your commitments and to help build the work of the Lord. Money is important. But, the pursue, but if you pursue money, and you lose everything. You lose your God, you lose your, 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 your principles, then you have unintentionally made a choice. Money is your God. This is a sobering scripture for me because sometimes with the pressures of life, you work too hard and godly principles are often not applicable in the commercial realm that we, we operate in. I need to constantly check myself whether in me trying to put bread on the table, am I still honoring God? Is God still at the center and not money? Ours is to ensure that the pursuit of riches and wealth doesn't become the, our greatest motivation in life. Pursue them. But God must still be at the center. That cannot be our greatest motivation in life. Do we agree, church? 
Yeah, that was very convicting for me as well. Let's quickly recap as the worship team comes up. Don't abuse grace in matters that involve finances. You're not abusing it elsewhere. When you get into your car, you wear your seatbelt. You don't jump off buildings hoping that you will fly. You understand the principles. So when it comes to money, let's not abuse grace. Secondly, let's apply the godly financial principles that are in scripture. Honor God with your wealth. And if it's practical to you, use the five jars method to distribute your monthly income. Number two, avoid debt. The borrower shall become the slave to the lender. Let's avoid debt where possible. Be aware of the danger of chasing wealth. Don't fall into the trap of trying to serve two masters. Don't make the pursuit of riches your biggest motivator. Jesus must remain at the center. I don't know where this message finds you today. Have you been applying godly financial principles in your life? Or these have never been taught to you, so your finances are in a mess. Are you struggling with debt? Or are you struggling with the worldview that makes money the most valuable thing in our culture? I would like to pray for you. I would like to pray for me and for us. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Lord, we thank you. Thank you for your life-giving wisdom. Thank you for the love that you have for us. You don't only desire that we attain salvation, but you also desire that we live functional, God-pleasing lives while we are still on earth. You know where this message finds each and every single one of us with regards to our finances. We accept that your financial principles work and we want to apply them. Please forgive us for sometimes thinking we can abuse grace in the area of finances. We ask for godly and wise people to help us in the areas that we need help. We pray, Lord, for self-discipline and a willing heart that wants to change, a willing heart that would like to apply your principles. Most importantly, Lord, we pray that our hearts seek and pursue, pursue you first, Jesus being at the center and the apple of our hearts. Our relationship with you is the most valuable thing we have. We treasure you and we thank you. In the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, church.